Good afternoon and welcome to the Healthy Indoors Live Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. Thanks for joining us today. We're happy you're uh, along for the ride. Today's show is uh, a really great one. We have someone who comes from the past in, in the IQ industry. I shouldn't say from the past. This is, the, this is a terrible introduction, Henry, but uh, someone who is, really has a long history in indoor air quality. So, uh, you know, without further ado, I'm going to pu pull you in here. So, Henry Slack, uh, a retired engineer from the US EPA. Uh, he was. Uh, Back in the day, he was the IAQ uh, program manager for Region 4 in uh, US EPA. Um, spoke at so many conferences, I can't even name how many times I've seen you on stage, my friend. Um, and always uh, just charming and full of great knowledge. And you're so personal, oh, too. You're very kind. Thank you. So uh, it's, it's so so great to have you on board. So we're gonna we're gonna get into a conversation with Henry here today in today's show, um, and it'll be wide ranging actually because you have a wide breadth of knowledge and experience in the industry. But first, we have a word from our sponsor, Erlab. Indoor air quality is now on the minds of everybody. How can we improve the air quality in general? So Erlab is a company that provides protection through filtration for your breathing zone in the laboratory and outside the laboratory. And why we're here in the commercial space today is to provide protection for the air that we breathe. It's very important in commercial spaces, obviously because there's a lot of people that come in and out of restaurants, schools, long-term care facilities, whatever it may be, offices. So we want to provide the healthiest air possible so we can get back to some sort of normalcy. And there we go. Now we're now we're official. <laughs> All so right. where are you you're coming to us? You live in Oklahoma, is that correct? No, I'm in Atlanta area. Why did I think that? I don't uh, know. Because Richard Shaughnessy worked with EPA for so long. Uh, so. That'll be a good excuse. We'll go with that. Yeah, yes, and he, we'll and take it. <laughs> so great. Um, so again, uh, I'm so happy that you're able to join us today. You, you've got just a storied past. I mean, in the indoor air quality uh, sector, you know, on the public side with EPA, I mean, you were there for de literally decades involved yep. with that. Yeah. Um, and uh, you've been now you're retired, but sounds like you're not that retired from our pre-show thing. Uh, what have you been yeah. up to? Uh, well, with COVID, I have done more indoor air for school buildings, trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And do they have enough outside air? As as probably every listener knows, there was a choir rehearsal in Washington State, March of 2020, where uh, one person came in sick with COVID. He sang or she sang for two and a half hours with 60 other people in the room and 50 of them left with COVID, uh, which to me is definitive proof that yes, this stuff is airborne. And if you're in a, in a space without ventilation where you can produce a lot of particles, then you will produce a lot of particles and other people can breathe them in. So we need ventilation air and or filtration to uh, help manage it and or possibly UV. So, you know, I guess since we're going down the path of the schools right now, we might as well run with that for a sec. Um, and since it's very timely, because many of the schools in the in the South in the U.S. have already opened, right? They began classes yes. a few weeks ago. And here in the North, it usually happens almost immediately after Labor Day, after this weekend. So next week, most of the rest of the schools in the United States will be open, correct? For most Probably. Part. Yeah. yeah so, if they're not closed for quarantining or... Well, okay, yeah, that, yeah, and that's see, there's a, there's a factor right there. Um, what 
boy, this is this is a loaded question. What do you think we should be doing, you know, collectively here to make these uh, these school environments uh, okay to reoccupy? You know, it's two of guess what we're really at, at all cost. I believe we want to try to avoid school closures again because that's not desirable. Yeah, and so what how, how do we need, avert that? We need three to six air changes an hour, depending on who you talk to and what uh, numbers you like, but. Uh, I've seen as low as three and as high as six ACH as as necessary. And you can do that either by, you know, actually having outside air as one school I visited did, or you can do it just by air cleaners. Another school I visited had uh, recently installed, a, it's a small private school, 60 or 70 students, and they'd recently installed wonderful uh, mini splits throughout the building. So every classroom had a mini split which is tremendous uh, for efficiency and terrible for outside air. You know, they, they essentially were bringing in no outside air. They had no filtration. And so I was able to say, well, get this, uh, forgotten the number. I think they needed 15 to 20 uh, HEPA air cleaners in each, uh, in, in the building throughout, one to three in each classroom, depending on how big the classroom was. So with a uh, clean air delivery rate of around 200 CFM. So they're not too noisy and they're not um, uh, too expensive. And that was so by far the cheapest thing they so could what they're, do. So what they're doing in lieu of actually doing air changes, they're doing air cycles, right? And, and, and filtering the air. Yeah, so but it's effective effective air, air changes because the air is cleaned. And that's sure. the crucial thing for COVID. And, and again, but but that I think one thing to point out though going forward is that strategy for COVID for you know uh, an aerosolized virus obviously is a great strategy, but it's probably that strategy is not going to work for trying to dilute chemicals in a space unless you're adding gas sorbent right. I mean, no, it's to, it's, it's terrible. Uh, it's for particulates. Yeah, and one of the I have a did an article and several talks about the need for ventilation. I still do it as an ashtray talk. I'm an ashtray distinguished lecturer. So I've talked to some ASHRAE chapters and we need more ventilation air probably than we get. I say need, we, we would benefit by having more. We'd have less illness inside when there's more ventilation. Uh, we'd have um, higher test scores. We'd have uh, more productive workers, et cetera. And so a lot of people look and say, oh, we have all this possible, all this outside air coming in. I can cut down on that and save money and install my amazing machine instead. And we don't need amazing machines. We need outside air much, much more. They, and, and yeah, that, that's, that's critically important. And, you know, do you think that, and I know I'm jumping ahead here, but do you think that this pandemic will be some sort of an impetus for th that to actually happen and maybe mechanical upgrades to happen in our schools? Cause I mean, schools are notoriously are underventilated, right? Yeah. I'm optimistic but cautiously optimistic because the people who um, make the decisions in school systems, the schools have gotten a chunk of money from the um, uh, recent federal bills that, that have, you know, been designed for COVID response, but not every school has said, Oh, let's improve ventilation air. I'm optimistic that enough have that it'll, it'll mark a, a big increase, but well, maybe not. 
I mean, a lot of schools, from what we've seen in, in, you know, in the news over the past several months, have opted into some technologies that might be questionable. You know, yeah, you we, know, we call someone. them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the term I've, I've learned lately is additive uh, air cleaners. So you add something to the air and say, see, this will make it better. You add ozone, you add uh, plasma, you add ions, you add something else. I've, I've even seen duct cleaning advertised for COVID, which is not a good idea. It, it's pointless is what it is. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. It's a great idea if you can do it. We One story I tell is, is I visited a business uh, and learned that they'd had someone who came and tested their air quality. And among other things, they tested their air for oxygen and nitrogen. And they found about 20% oxygen and about 80% nitrogen, which was, you know, very appropriate. It was air. That would be air. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I've, I've always wanted to meet the salesman who sold them that uh, testing. But it just, you know, we, we one challenge always in the indoor air field is, can we get enough information? But the other challenge is, do we get too much information? How much do we need? Where Where do we what what don't we need because it can be so distracting in the pre-show we, we were we were uh, discussing some of those technologies because there's you know one in particular and i don't have a problem you know naming naming the technologies either because it's kind of interesting um the, the dna based technology that basically allows you to put markers in the air and track it yeah that and, that's there there's some fascinating things that have come out that are very useful uh but you know, again, when do you when do you stop? We had a a fire actually on the floor below me at EPA one year, and uh, all the advice I could find said you don't need to test the air once the cleanup is done. And nonetheless, we had an EPA employee, you know, a chief who said, "No, we're EPA. We're going to test because that's what EPA does." And it's like, you know. That was that was unnecessary testing, and so it's it's finding that balance, and or finding the stuff that you've tested that really makes sense to keep and expand. You know, so what answers the question? You know, what is the question? Well, why are people sick usually? And so you look for the obvious stuff, or instead of testing, you just and I love this, you just say, okay, we need to. Um, take care of everything wrong in the building, do all the $5 fixes and the $50 fixes because they're cheap and worth doing anyway. And maybe these will solve the problem or maybe it won't. And if they won't, then you go to the 500 and $5,000 and $50,000 fixes. But but you sort of try to do the basics that, that you know can improve things, you know, make sure the outside air is coming in, make sure the filters are installed properly. I visited a doctor's office once where there were no filters. Uh, and the doctor was, needless to say, surprised. But apparently the guy didn't have the right size filter when he visited. He said, oh, I'll just put these in when I get back. And, you know, he hadn't come back for several months. Well, I mean, I think you describe, you know, a process, low-lying fruit, right? You go, I mean, it, it does make sense. I think that's that's the cost-effective and the reasonable approach. If you see obvious things that are readily remedied why not do them right i mean it makes yeah. sense yeah and and try to because that's the thing i think a lot of people especially in the on the consumer side 
don't really understand that a lot of this is hit and miss when we're, you know, looking, doing an IAQ investigation. We may have some obvious players, but there may be some factors in it in that are not that obvious. Right. And you have to eliminate it's almost peeling that onion. Right. To get sometimes to get to the result. One of one of the great things at EPA is I got to speak to a lot of people in the public. And one of them, this woman called once she wanted to test the air. We had to come test her air because this man kept putting stuff in her basement and she wanted to know what it was and so on. And eventually I asked, you know, well, why don't you talk to the man? You know, who is he? And she says, well, it's my, my, my husband. And <laughs> like, you know, she wanted the government to come out and spend thousands of dollars on testing, which we don't do anyway. Sure. We don't have that budget. Um, and I, I also apologize. I am so used to saying EPA as we, but which EPA does not do. Because well, you can say, I mean, you, you were with EPA for so many, how long were you with EPA? To, 27 to, years dealing with indoor air. I can see how that would actually stick and you'd still feel we. Yeah. It seems reasonable. Very much. Well, thank you. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to break myself of the habit. But EPA was, was really great experience for me in part because we didn't test. We had no regulations. And so this allowed us to help all sorts of people who could not afford testing and uh, testing wouldn't necessarily help. Uh, you know, a lot of times they could identify the problem. Oh, there's mold here and the landlord won't fix it. And so on. like, well, you know, you don't need to test for mold. You can see it. It's there. You, you know, there, there's got to be a solution besides testing. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I guess, you know, one of the, the, the re to me, you know, and, and some of the other guests, we've, we've had discussions in the past about testing, especially with mold, you know, to me, it only makes sense to do perform testing if the testing is going to affect what your actions will be afterwards. Right? Absolutely. If, right. Like if you're, you know, if you visibly see a problem, you can see gross mold contamination on a space. Will the testing change your strategy? <laughs> Yeah. You know, and if well, it won't, then why are you doing it? <laughs> I like to tell two little stories. Uh, one, I talked to a woman whose name I cannot remember, as often happens. Uh, but she had specialized her indoor air firm for uh, Fortune 500 companies. And she was in Atlanta. And so we could name Coca-Cola, Home Depot, other, mm -hmm. you know, other big businesses. But she said she would never send in a... Uh, industrial hygienist to test until maybe the third visit because the experience was if you test uh, that data becomes part of you know the process of discovery for somebody suing you later and it was just too easy to misuse in a court case you know oh you found a cladosporium in the classroom uh, or in the office, like, you know, yeah, it's leaf mold, but it sounds worse than that to a judge and jury. And so it was a great experience. The other story actually was in, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a downtown federal office building, and yet some interesting things happened indoor air-wise, including one year, uh, it was December 31st, the new cleaning contractor apparently uh, managed to uh, leave a hose unplugged it wasn't it wasn't completely turned off and so oh over new year's day water ran down uh 14 floors or so 
Um, we found out the building is, is slightly tilted, not quite level, based on the water flow. And uh, to their credit, General Services Administration, which runs federal buildings, did not come in and test for mold. They came in with a moisture meter and went around testing the walls in different places in order to say, ah, this wall needs, this section of wall is wet, so wet it needs to come down. This section of wall is dry enough, we'll leave it up. And that was just wonderful that, I mean, they literally saved hundreds of thousands of dollars of testing and protected people pretty well. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it comes down to is testing. If you solely, as, as a consultant or, or, or even, you know, as, as a client that's, that's asking for it, if you solely rely on testing to make your decisions, that, that's, you're already making a mistake, right? You re really should be doing the visual, the, you know, the interviews with the occupants to understand what's going on, right? What, what's happening in the space, you know, the historic data, all that information. Um, and, and I think there's also this conflation a little bit between testing uh, sampling, I should say, the term sampling, yeah. taking a bunch of samples versus testing can also really be looking at real-time parameters, right? Temperature, you know, relative humidity, right. airborne particles, like that, to me, those, those are standard practice you should come in and that you know that's frontline you come in visually assess and then use some direct read measurement equipment to see what's going on right well you also use direct read measurement equipment because people are expecting that you know we grew up <laughs> okay. you know many of us grew up with star trek and mr tricorder beams down to this yeah i mean what this is a track order now do you have one? Oh, well uh, i guess i'd love a tricorder <laughs> uh not not a genuine one but you know <laughs> Uh, you beam down and, and Mr. Spock says, atmosphere is earth normal, Captain. And I always wonder what the hell does earth normal mean anyway? But beyond that, uh, you know, you'd think they'd want that information before they start breathing down there and go, Captain, there's a, a problem with air. <laughs> but we need a piece of equipment to walk around with so they know we are serious scientists. We can't all be Joe Seabrook you know, walking around with a, what did he carry for a while? Or was it Terry? He had a Brennan? cardboard box, didn't he? With a, with a digital manometer. That was his bolometer unit. Ah, that may have been it, but somebody has walked around uh, with a uh, ice pick so they could draw a sample on the, from the other side of the wall without making a big hole. Like, yeah, that's, that can be appropriate, but it's probably not something you want to do the first time you're with the client. You want to walk around and be looking at this piece of equipment instead and saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then they know you're serious. <laughs> Sorry. No, but, that's great because you know what? There's some truth to that, Henry. I, I mean, I, I, I can't deny that there is a PT Barnum aspect to, to this industry and probably every industry uh, a little bit. There, yeah. there has to be. Well, but I mean, got... you also do glean some value from that data if you know what you're doing with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And but it's it's how you get taken seriously, even though what, you know, as as any good practitioner would say, what we are really doing is using our eyes, using our nose, using our ears sometime to try to get a sense of what's going on. I mean, you can hear uh, when when belts are slipping off and and motors are are misfiring and you know, stuff, stuff being silent that shouldn't be silent is, is a big clue to, oh, maybe this isn't working right. Although there's also a classic story where they, uh, they were checking a radon system 
that had been installed 15 years earlier and they said, oh, we know it's working, you can hear the fan. And then when they investigated, they found squirrels had been filling in the uh, radon pipe with nuts and other debris. And so it wasn't moving any air, but they could hear the fan. Uh, Maybe they could hear the squirrels too. Yeah. So you have to, you have to, you know, look at everything and don't, don't just assume it can work. And this is, this is EPA. Again, something I love is the IQ tools for schools action kit and the checklist they have, which make it possible to walk around and say, well, is this going on? Is this going on? And it, it really gives you a, a thorough idea of, you know, oh, here's something that's screwed up. Was that that raises a good question too, Henry? So you, you mentioned you know EPA you know doesn't do testing and didn't ha you know historically hasn't done testing, but EPA has created some guidance documents, quite a few over the years. Um, the Tools for Schools kit was one that's been widely used, literally for decades. That, but that was actually the uh, uh, its pr precursor was the Building Air Quality Manual. Correct? Yes. Yeah. So, absolutely. And and that that was I, I guess was originally penned in like eighty nine ninety right. That's that's. Right well, I started at EPA in 91, so I think it may, we, we kept hearing, oh, it's coming, oh, it's coming. I don't think it came out till 92 or 93. Okay. Uh -oh. And so, so that, and that's, you know, that's interesting because like back in the day, I mean, I, I used to teach classes on that and we, you know, we, uh, many people in the industry kind of honed our teeth on that. That was, uh, you know, that was one of the first, that really was one of the first indoor air quality documents that we, you know, we could wield, right. And walk around with yeah. and, and it had an EPA logo on it. So, you know, it, it, there was some credibility there. Good document. So is that still applicable today? I hope so. Uh, I mean, one of the things which was always frustrating at EPA is like, oh, there's a big problem. Well, it'll take us, you know, three months to draft the guidance document or three months to get a contract for somebody else to write it. And then, you know, we, we EPA was slow and ponderous, but I'm very proud that time and time again, we did work that lasted, you know, for decades. Nothing, nothing slipshod, nothing flashed in the pan, and just um, always going back to the basic principles. So, the, I mean, certainly, uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, there's technology. Obviously, we've had we've had tech, technological advancements since that book was authored in uh, the '90s. Uh, but the, the, I guess the principles still hold true. I would agree. You know, very it's, much so. It's, it's sound science principles that it's based on. Um, I, I guess the the photos that have to be updated a little. Some of them, yeah. Maybe. But you know. uh, that's one other thing that your listeners may not know. EPA has photo libraries and and building air quality and the uh, I can't think of the name now, uh, but. EPA has has some lovely pictures that are in the public domain you can use, and um, sometimes there are even nice nice documents where you can see the air flowing. This arrow going here, 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 and so you can show positive and negative air pressure, and that's that's very important when you're doing education and trying to help people get it. What the hell is going on? Yeah, that, that's super valuable. I think, you know, especially those animations, you know, because uh, now the building air quality, that book, that was really geared toward the commercial building management, right? That really right. wasn't, that wasn't a consumer document per se. Not at all. Yeah. Um, and, and again, tools for schools kind of play, uh, you know, 
took that and 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 expanded it to the school environment, which obviously is a little bit different. Um, you know, you you believe, you know, you mentioned earlier that you think schools, all schools could benefit from enhanced ventilation, which I, I would completely agree with. We had uh, one of our uh, listeners commented here. Uh, this is about the mini split comment because you've seen a lot of mini splits being put in. And unfortunately, mini splits are for the most part only going to deal with sensible heating and cooling. I mean, there's yeah. going to be some moisture removal. I mean, they're capable. You know, to some extent, so you get a little bit of latent removal, but you really you're not bringing any air in with those things. They're just a recycle type device. Yeah. So, uh, so their com the comment was from Terry was uh, many splits also quickly and easily develop mold and spread the mold and particles around the space. Many splits also don't have anywhere near uh, a MERV thirteen, let alone uh, HEPA filtration. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, they so actually they have just little teeny, usually little pad filters on them, right? Yeah. Merv, Merv one half probably to Merv zero. <laughs> to Merv zero. Yeah. These are, you know, everybody knows the salt cellar trick where you hold the filter out and bring the salt shaker up and shake salt and you watch it go through the filter. Yeah, that works. I mean, we, we used to do um, talcum powder with it because the, the salt falls through even more readily, but the talcum powder is, you know, like finer things and it just turns. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, you understand if, if I can shake some stuff over the top and it falls out of the bottom, it's not really filtering very much. Yeah, absolutely. It's a boulder filter. It stops cat hair and, uh, you know, leaves. Well, moths. Yeah, moth, moths. Moths, uh, I guess. Yeah, that's so. But, but that wasn't that almost the original. I mean, you think back, right? Pre, you know, precursor to us maybe being directly concerned with indoor air quality. Filters originally were just to keep moths and things out of the coils, right? Right. Mm. And, uh, Fortunately, we've we've evolved since then significantly. And also fortunately, at one time ASHRAE had three kinds of filter tests and they realized that people were saying, look, the, our filter is 99% effective based on this test and people didn't know that was not the right test. So they uh, condensed it down into MERV system, which is just wonderful. And now everybody can understand it, even though they're thinking about MERV Griffin or, uh, something else you're dating both of us because i you know obviously I know who yes is. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well again for general consumers you really have to distill it i mean you just do uh, because you're, you're not you know, you're not going to expect the average citizen to really understand a lot of it you have to make it pretty simple straightforward right yeah well and build their trust and help them also because <laughs> every week it seemed like somebody would call who was really under stress and they couldn't do anything. They didn't have money to try to fix it. The landlord wouldn't fix it. They couldn't push their, you know, they call EPA because they're really looking for help. And so I also developed uh, what I called West uh, for stress. So if you are stressed, consider writing stuff down, you know, journaling or something. Uh, exercise, always good as a stress reduction technique. Uh, sometimes you can sit and meditate or uh, uh, centering prayer, be the name, or, or talk it out to people, W-E-S-T. Uh, so this, uh, I, I like to hope, helped people. But I learned, you know, occasionally, and probably many, many people listening have had this experience, uh, we've, we've heard from people who... Uh, may not be in the best mental condition. 
Uh, and I'm not going to, well, at EPA, I couldn't call them crazy. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's politically incorrect, but I mean, you know, but as a consultant, you know, I'm not going to lie. I've felt that way at times. You know. Yeah, exactly. And, and so uh, this was a way of suggesting, well, maybe you want to talk it out to somebody, you know, and if you don't have a friend, well, maybe a therapist because stuff does happen and they feel bad. And um, sometimes that's the best thing or they, they're, they're stuck for other reasons. I talked to one woman about 20 minutes about her horrible living conditions on these farm, on this farm uh, with, with various insects and molds and so on. But she couldn't leave because she kept her horse there for free. Uh, if you've ever boarded a horse, it's it's very expensive. Uh, yeah, so, my wife owns two. We have two oh, donkeys. And so I'll never retire as a result of the equine side of my world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unless maybe you can find a place to live that has that's truly horrible, but they board the horse for free. What I did find, Henry, just as an aside, is I found a way to make a small fortune in the equine industry. Easy. You way. start with start, start with, a with a really fortune. big fortune. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the boat owner's method or the lawyer who uh, he told his client, uh, you know, you got a million dollars. You'll never go to jail with that kind of money. And indeed, <laughs> when he went to jail, he was broke. Yep. But so, but that's, there's there's a point, you know, the, the stress factor for, for all of these things. I mean, as, as over the years, you know, I've been a consultant for 36 years now and, um, you know, I've seen so many. Uh, individuals you know where, where it's like it's really dramatically affected their lives at you know adversely you know i mean you know mold problems or different types of problems where people's health had deteriorated and certainly it affects their mental health and some of it i think is actually a clinical manifestation some of it is just a stress-related manifestation but regardless they're experiencing it those yeah. people are miserable yeah and so you you have to start with empathy and um had a calendar once and had the quote uh, they will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so certainly leading with, with your heart and such, and that also allows them to trust you and, and mm -hmm. optimistically you'll have a good solution. Um, you know, keep your fingers crossed. You know, and th those are, I mean, that's actually great. And I've, I've tried to live my career that way. Uh, my fear is that, a lot of, you know, at least a sector, I shouldn't say a lot, I'm not going to qualify it, but a sector of the industry does not go by that mantra. <laughs> you know, a sector of the industry is totally profit driven. I think some are, some are misinformed. You know, so I, I don't think everybody's criminal. I think some people are just, they have bad data and maybe they have good intentions and, and they, they offer solutions that don't necessarily aren't the right solutions because they just don't know any better. And then there is, I think, a smaller sector of the, the true snake oil sector that knows better and really just sells stuff that they know, you know, can make money, but doesn't really do anything. Yeah. And that was the ozone generators in the 1990s that uh, truly bedeviled EPA. Just uh, ozone machines were making people sick. And I had a woman call once. She had done one of their classic tests. Um uh, that they that they learned to demonstrate you cut an onion pass it around and then you hold it in front of the ozone machine for five minutes and talk and then you pass it around again they can't smell anything the second time and they say that's because the ozone's there but in reality it's because 
the airflow was drying up the um, odorizers, shall we say, the, the scents from the onion. And she said, well, I did this, but I forgot to put the ozone plate in the machine. And it still worked. And funny how that worked. Yeah. Yeah. She, she didn't quite make the full connection, but yeah, they, those, the leaders of that were definitely, um, I don't want to say smarmy. Um, I'd like to find a synonym that's not quite as bad. Um, but they, they were quite capable of misleading information and, you know, you want to help out your friends and, and make a little money on the side. And this is a great device. And, you know, well, just... they create an army of people actually mobilizing and marketing this stuff who truly believed it worked. Yeah, I think many of the people that were on the ground selling this stuff really thought they were doing something good. I don't think, you know, they had ill Absolutely. intent at all, you know. Yeah, no. Which is scary. Yeah, yeah well, it's scary that they were as easy to manipulate as that. But uh, they're, they're still, uh, I, I wish that ozone generators had worked the way they said. And I wish that, you know, a lot of other technologies worked as well as the salesman says, but they don't. Well, there's limitations. Everything has a limitation. There's no, I, I think the problem is, is, and maybe this may be a global issue uh, psychologically, but at least as Americans, we want us, we want a solution that we can just, you know, this is the solution. This is the end all answer to our problem. And it, it doesn't really work that way, does it? I wish it did. But, you know, we live in the real world and uh, things are much more complicated. Is the science paper I read once said under the most carefully controlled uh, settings of temperature, humidity, and uh, pressure, and so on, the organism will do as it damn well pleases. We, we do not control these things nearly as well as we, we think we can. So we, we look for broad strokes, and, you know, I like uh, the uh, healthy homes, keep it dry, keep it bug-free, keep it uh, clean, etc., as as you know nice big easy to understand things well simple and i think that what we just mentioned here is a, is a great segue to uh things that we don't control uh and we'll talk about the the outdoor environment and how that affects the indoor environment uh, i want to remind our viewers who are here live um that on the healthy indoors online global community you can actually post comments and questions and we can take those uh live with henry right now or you can post them after if you're watching the show at a later date on the recording and uh, i'll implore henry to once in a while check back and look for comments and maybe Maybe, you know, still respond at a later date. That, that's the great thing. This Your, your comments, uh, if you post them in the comment section rather than the chat, it'll actually stay there indefinitely. So that's good. So you've been involved with climate change issues. Um, yes. And you, the one thing you, you, I saw this this one phrase you use, global weirding. You've got to mm -hmm. elaborate on that for me. Yeah, it's, it's a phrase I heard from, uh, uh, I think... Uh, her name was Hillary Levins. But uh, what we're going to be seeing much more of in the future is weird weather. And what happens outside comes inside. My um, old boss at EPA used to say, indoor air is as big as all outdoors, which was a wonderful way to think of it because, damn it, air, everything's inside. But especially stuff from outside air gets inside. And right now, out west, there are wildfires. You may have seen that uh, an air cleaner company donated uh, $6,000, $60,000 worth of air cleaners to a, 
a town in Washington state that has the worst air quality of anywhere. Uh, so we've got to deal with, with wildfire smoke for the first time in many places. We've got to deal with um, more flooding. We've got to deal with excess temperatures, which is like, well, is that really our job as indoor air? Well, if you're prescribing something to happen on as part of the HVAC equipment, well, then yes, you do worry when it goes to 110 or 115 degrees outside. What does that mean? What does that do to you? And so climate change has has huge effects on, on what we're trying to do to create uh, healthy environments indoors. And for that matter, you may have the best building in the world, but if people can't get there because of flooding, because of other disruptions, you know, look at the things in New Orleans now. Uh, you could have a truly wonderful building in downtown New Orleans that has no power and no uh you know, you're just dead in the water. Well, I mean, that brings up a big question about designing, you know, with resilience in mind and being able to, you know, because we are going to have, even if we, if we were to pull out all stops, and I believe, and do every bit of mitigation we can to try to avert the climate change issue, we can't stop it. The best we can probably do is slow things down. Right? Yes. I mean, it, it, we're, we're never, because there is, first of all, behind that, there is a natural cyclic change over 50,000 year, whatever cycle. You do have climate, you know, gradual climate change. We've accelerated it with our carbon emissions the last 200 and some years. Um, so we, we could do, we could slow it down, but obviously we're, we've got almost all of our structures on the coastal, you know, and the bulk of our population lives on water or near water. And that's true of the planet, right? Almost, I think, what, 70% of the world's population lives near somewhere near coastal areas um, that sounds right and i don't have i paraphrase the number but it's, it's it's a pretty high number so you know if we start rising the tides a little bit this is going to affect millions upon millions of people right so, and they're going to be coming uphill to places like oklahoma and atlanta and you know <laughs> well yeah miami's I mean, not miami's going to be atlantis in, in 50 years oh uh, um, very likely <laughs> and and some some places we can protect well with seawalls and so on when they're built on granite, but if they're built on mud, it doesn't help. Miami's big problem also is that uh, seawater uh, percolates into their freshwater supply, and so that's that's. I mean, we we are we are in for a world of hurt, is the problem, and so I'm working to tr with this group called Citizens Climate Lobby to try to prevent um all the problems we can and get congress's attention but what i want more people to do is just say yeah climate change is an issue let's talk about it and i'm going to mention it to my county commissioner or my city council member or my next door neighbor you know we, we literally for this it's the biggest problem in the world and we're not even talking about it regularly so uh We've got to talk about it to address it, which will make the oil companies mad, but that's their problem. But And what you're suggesting here is, is that not only do we have to try to deal with it from the top down, but from the bottom up, right, from, lo from local up, because I, yeah. I don't think there has been very much of a push on that regard. Right. But think about when you're, if you are designing a building or your own place, think about let's put solar on the roof and get a battery so that even if, uh, the power lines go down for a week, we will have some power. I can keep charging my cell phone. I can keep uh, some sorts of, of uh, I can keep the refrigerator going without having to go out and search for ice from the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, 
businesses. I can, you know, we, we can do a lot of things with a little bit of solar and, and some battery backup to make our buildings usable and, and uh, healthful. And this oh. is with existing technology. This is that we don't have, you know, this is just a, par a mental paradigm shift more than anything, right? And just right. how how we how we view these things. And, and it, it amazes me that here we are in 2021, and you know we're 25 years into some severe weather events. They've been progressively getting worse. It's been about a that's to my recollection. You know, the, the the really bad hurricanes for the most part started in the mid to late 90s. They started. Right. I mean, there were more. There were yeah, that sounds that, right. But, but it's it seems like they've gotten progressively worse. Yeah. Um, it, it, Ida is a classic example. What, three days before it's a category four hurricane, it's just a tropical storm. Yep. So it accelerated and, you know, and went from really something that wasn't any concern to something within 24 hours that was major concern. And and that that's climate driven. Right. That's because yeah. of temperature and the thermal the heat of the water in the Gulf yeah. of Mexico. And it's going to take a while for that to be able to cool down, even if we were to change things instantly. But we we badly need to change as quickly as we can. And it's it's tough. But we've got, I mean, the short answer is there's nothing you can do that's wrong that'll help. But don't think, well, you know, gee, I changed this. That's all I have to do. No, there's there's always more to be done. And the biggest thing to do, though, is is get other people to talk about it and improve buildings buildings are, are a huge source of right now fossil fuel derived electricity and and natural gas so think about electrifying buildings if you're in charge of a building and think about how you can tighten it up and if you can get a zero energy building that's great the new ashray headquarters uh they renovated a 40 year old building and made it zero energy which is i just my, my, my hat's off to them. Mm -hmm. It's so doable. I mean, honestly, I was involved um, working along with an architect quite a few years ago, 2009, for a local parade of homes uh, property here in Syracuse. And, uh, you know, the builder was a friend of mine. He wanted to try to go net zero. And it was, I have to call this house Darth Vader green because it was a 4,800 square foot house. So that's already not really a green house. You know, nobody needs a five bedroom, you know, five bathroom house. I mean, I'm just saying realistically, it's it, it's an ex and it was a colonial design. So it had a lot of wasted structural material and attic space, you know. But but the point is, we were really able to get this property to net zero or really close, right. you know, near net zero uh, with, you know, uh, PV solar array on the roof, plus vertical uh, wind turbines, uh, wow. plus uh, ground source geothermal, two different heat pumps, one for domestic hot water, one for heating and cooling. You know, and, and and all all that stuff, you know, it actually got this house down to maybe a fifty dollar a month max energy cost for a four thousand eight hundred yeah. square foot house in central New York, which is which is wonderful. And they've done it's other doable. other houses. Yeah, it's it's doable. Uh, EPA's own uh, uh, green energy program, uh, Energy Star, has. You can, can build a standard house or you can build a house that uses 25% of the energy according to, you know, using energy star methods and it doesn't cost significantly more, but your bill is a quarter of what it would be otherwise. And that because it's a quarter of what it could be, then you can put on solar panels on the roof and uh, essentially be zero energy. So that's critical.
I find it, you know, what's honestly what really kind of upsets me. I'm, I'm going to use the word infuriates because that might be a little strong. It, sometimes it does. It depends on the time of day. Uh, sometimes yeah. I am infuriated by it. Is that we have this technology? Why are we not putting solar panels on almost every building? You know, like we could reduce our our fossil fuel electric generation substantially just by having solar a lot of solar PV. You know, we, I don't yeah. we couldn't replace it with that, but we could certainly diminish the use of it. You know, and I, I just don't. It doesn't seem like we. It doesn't seem like the the. I don't even. The will, you know, is there to do it yet? It's, it's real, real hard for us to get rid of sunk costs. You know, now that I have, you know, when I first bought an an electronic phone that didn't flip open and close, it's like, oh, okay, this is a sunk cost, and now I have to do things to 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 justify it. And if, you know, the old adage, if you uh, have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail because that's your only tool. And so our power companies, you know, if you, if you had uh, people in your class who went to work for a power company, it wasn't because they were clever and innovative and, you know, thinking outside the box. No, it, people who are, are, Kind of uh, less they're creative. Between, they're, they're between the lines. They, they they like power company work because it's it's very clear and straightforward. And now we're asking them, oh, don't go from the cent with the central plant. Let's go for 500 rooftops instead. And they're like, well, wait. And and you know, it's it's not in their general skill set. So um, there's a lot of other other things that have kept us from moving forward on climate, but. Truly, buildings are are the hugest thing. And one of the things I appreciate about green building programs is, for the first time, builders actually paid attention to IQ. You know, fifteen percent of lead points were IQ points, and that was a hell of a lot better than we ever had before. When what what we heard at EPA informally was that uh, people involved in buildings were saying, you know, we're not going to support any any programs that would improve indoor air in the building because that would say we're doing something wrong now. And they, they really didn't want that people to be thinking that at all. It, it, I mean, the pushback, you know, because I'm, I'm even thinking back to 2009, you know, I was, you know, on this local construction site for a few months as the IAQ guy, the green building guy. And that was when uh, the uh, national home builders first came out with their uh, green building program. So we were trying to be the first Emerald House in, uh, I think, in New York. No, actually, in the country because there was it had just come out. And um, oh, but these other builders, you know, because it was a freight homes thing with nine mm -hmm. properties. The harassment that I I would get there from these guys in 2009, you know, and, and then the subcontractors coming in and you know we're asking them to do things a little bit different. Oh. You know, yeah. even the suppliers, you know, they want to just drop the materials out in the lot and let them sit in the rain, you know, for <laughs> let the OSB sit out in the rain for three yeah. weeks. Change is difficult. And, it it and, is. It's not. But, you know, we will we will change or we will be changed. Well, it's extinction. Extinction is di difficult, too. And, and, I, and we've had six major extinctions right in the time of this planet where, you know, 70% or more of the life disappeared. It's not like this hasn't happened before. You know, change, it, it, the planet's going to survive just fine. Yeah. But yeah. we do need to take into air seriously. The recent uh, UN inter, inter panel uh, committee on climate change 
intergovernmental panel, uh, says it's it's code red for humanity and we have until 2030 to make significant changes. But the great news is we can, we can make better buildings. Look at, again, I go to ASHRAE headquarters, a 40 year old building got renovated. Uh, many of us can deal with our houses. Uh, there's, there's, there's tons of opportunities mm -hmm. available. So uh, there's just, we're, we're, we tend to be reluctant to change and that's, that's hard to get around. The, but the, you know, we're fourth quarter, you know, late fourth quarter, maybe. I, I think people don't realize that this is, yeah, this is real. And, and what's unfortunate, you know, that I see is that it's been politicized more so maybe in the United States than some other countries. I mean, many countries, but it seems like here we've politicized the heck out of it and I, to our own detriment. Yeah. And beyond that, uh, fossil fuel companies have been big to say it's your responsibility. You are the one causing this. And therefore, uh, you know, you have to give up meat, for example. <laughs> right. You have to give up driving a car. You have to give up flying. And no, that's not what's what we need. What we need is for the oil companies to take the responsibility to uh, figure out how to cut their own emissions. And, you know, they don't want to do that. We're going to cut their sales. They're, they're not going, but I, I don't, I don't see them doing that because they're not, they're not really financially motivated to at this juncture. Right. I mean, when it comes right down to it. Yeah. And in a way it's, it resembles tobacco companies. For those of you who don't know. Yeah, right. It's, and, that's what I was going to say. There's a, yeah. there's an absolute parallel to the mid nineties right here. Right. Yeah. In 1993, well, uh, the tobacco companies were very, very effective at Congress. The tobacco was not covered under pesticide laws. It was not covered under, toxic materials laws it was not it, it got left out of a lot of laws but they passed an indoor air act in 88 or so that said epa can conduct research and disseminate information so massive five words conduct research disseminate information and and epa i wasn't working there then but to their credit they went and said ah well let's investigate secondhand tobacco smoke and it was in the spring of 93, they released a big report that said secondhand smoke is a class A carcinogen. And lo and behold, that means it could give lung cancer to people, which meant that if, you know, I'm, I'm Joe executive in a corner office and my secretary sitting outside and she's breathing in my smoke and she gets cancer, she can sue me and win. Right. And suddenly all these buildings went smoke free. And that was just such a tremendous change that happened almost instantly. Mm -hmm. I used to work next to Ralph who smoked eh, probably a pack and a half a day, you know, in the cubicle next to me. It was, it was you're not great. Not smoking, right? Uh, I wasn't smoking at the time. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, you know, I always love that with the restaurants. You had smoking area, non-smoking area. Yeah. There's a uh, the coach at Kentucky said, well, that's like saying, well, here's the non-pissing area of the pool. Right. Uh, he, he didn't appreciate it but you know we were able to get rid of smoking relatively quickly uh indoors and suddenly everybody's air is a lot better for it so i'm optimistic that we can make that shift it's like it, we can't possibly change until suddenly ah yes we are changing we do change i mean the the, the difference here though is that 
with climate change, I mean, and this is, I think, the profound difference is that there is a tipping point, right? I mean, there's a certain point where if you start, if if certain things come into play and like the Gulf Stream starts changing and things start changing, we're in trouble because then yeah. we're, we're, we're going to be past a point where anything we do with carbon emissions is going to stop it. If, you know, if we, we're, we're basically rolling the big snowball down the hill at some point. Yeah, um, very much. And, and it's... And, we're There's close. methane. I mean, and, we're we're closer than we should be, really, right now. Yeah, methane in the Arctic and uh, where it's frozen now, but can uh, yeah, it's come sequestered. Out. It's sequestered, but when you melt the ice, yeah, exactly. So, like I say, we're in for a world of hurt. And the good news is, right now, the the Senate has is considering this big bill called the Reconciliation Package. Mm -hmm. It's going to be passed only by Democratic votes, but it has some climate stuff in there from what i've heard we won't see a full full package until mid-september so um but really it helps to let people know and especially let elected officials know yeah you're worried about climate because it's going to make things rougher for our kids you know uh already i was just reading there's now a beer shortage in britain uh which that's intolerable yeah, well, you'd think so. Uh, you know, I, I can't grow chocolate on my own land. I'm going to have to depend on imports. And if they can't grow chocolate there, or what if they can't grow coffee anymore? These, these are these are real uh, things. Yeah, and real concerns. And we've got to be able to do what we can to address them sooner than later. And like I say, they do affect indoor air. Um, because, sure. and one of the things, if should you be advising anybody on buildings, they should prepare for droughts, be able to collect rainwater for reuse. They should be prepared for flooding. So make sure that, that things can run off and oversize things, quite frankly. That's 17 inches of rain in one day in Middle Tennessee. That's going to be more common. It's going to be like a terrorist effect. Right. So uh, don't, uh, don't buy seashore, seafront property, beachfront property in Miami. Um, sorry to say, but that's... well, I mean, unless you, unless you only have a real short window, like, I guess if you're like huh. toward the end of your cycle, it's probably all right. But I mean, well, yeah, you, you've got, you've got a, you've got a window of opportunity to still enjoy your beachfront before you're underwater. Yeah. I, I've got a piece of equipment recently. The, the guy says, now this comes with a lifetime warranty. I said, well, that, that doesn't mean as much to me as it used to. You know, oh my God. I, I say that now too. This, 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 and I'm 62. So I, I, I actually look at things like I'm thinking like I may have to buy a new refrigerator. I'm like, well, I'll only probably buy one more. <laughs> it's like, you know, and it's, it's when well, you start you so. that realization, you know, it's like, ah, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> but, but we want people to be able to enjoy things behind us and, and to not be suffering. So that's right. I mean, like the Native American seven, you know, seven generation mindset is really where our mindset should be. Yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't just be looking at the next quarter's profits. And and that's I, unfortunately, that's that still seems to drive a lot of policy and a lot of decisions. You know? Right. So uh, but we, we haven't changed anything here today, Henry, but at least we talked about some of it. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's it's crucial. And I'll, I'll mention again, my organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, is does wonderful work, in my opinion. I'm a little biased, uh, certainly, but they have 450 chapters around the country and probably one near you. What's the website for that? Uh, the easiest one is cclusa.org. 
I'm going to actually put that up. Hey, well, thank you, Bob. I attempt to. Let's see if I can actually TCN. Yep, got it. Here we go. Add banner and coming up. Yeah, That's right. Thank right? you. Yeah, very good. It's uh, uh, just uh, using those magic fingers. So um, this this has been fantastic. I wish we had two hours, to be honest, Henry. Um, I, I, could, I could chat with you uh, almost never ending. Uh, this, you know, closing thought, final, is there, is there a point that I didn't get, get you an opportunity to throw out there, or at least uh, your closing thought? We've got a couple minutes left here. Oh, one of the problems we had at EPA, quite frankly, is that government does great things for us. And people say, well, its only job is, is to have military. Well, no, it's, it's, it's got so many other jobs, but throughout the, uh, in, in the early 2000s, under the George W. Bush administration, uh, we were um, our budget was was okay. It was expanding slightly. They they liked uh, non-regulatory programs like indoor air, and then uh, under the Trump administration, no, let's let's keep cutting. And actually, the Obama administration did a lot of that too. And uh, we need, as as you may have noticed, there's a been a pandemic going on. We badly need to fund effective public health. We badly need to fund environmental protection. We badly need to fund, you know, a lot more things than we have, than we've been paying for. And so again, encourage local officials and say, yeah, we need, need funding for a lot more things than, than just, you know, roads and bridges and policemen. We need a paradigm shift a little bit. Ah, well, you can say that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and quite frankly, we need more people to pay attention to indoor air ahead of time instead of reacting and thinking, oh, God, I didn't know it would do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. It's being proactive. Being yeah. pro what, what a concept. You, yeah. I think humans by nature are not, we're not a proactive uh, species, though, really, are we? No, we're not. I was we're thinking this morning how how anything we create is going to end up at some point by the roadside. Just, I mean, yeah. No matter what sort of fantastic material it is, we're gonna we're gonna throw it out. We're gonna dump it, and so we really need those things. Everything we do to be as as sustainable as possible, as recyclable as, you know, we need to stop stop using poisonous stuff. Yeah, well, it's back to that whole Planet B mindset, right? We don't have another place to go. We're effectively a spaceship flying around out in the galaxy. And uh, we have a finite amount of supplies and that's all we've got. We've got these resources. It'd be just, yeah. just like being on a Mars mission and being low on your resources. Uh, you know, it doesn't have a yeah. great ending if, if you don't use your resources wise, wisely. Yeah. Well, and uh, there, there's a lot more we can do, but, but again, encouraging people to be thoughtful and, and intelligent. Uh, sorry. I, that may be beyond <laughs> some people's capability. Say, well, thought, thoughtful, I, 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 which I don't know which one's the harder lift. I, probably the intelligent one. But uh, George Carlin said it best when he said, "Think, you know, think of how uh, stupid the uh, average person is, and then realize that half of them are stupider than that." I paraphrased yeah. it poorly, but it, it, it's true. People, you know what it is? People also, you get caught up in your life, and you know, and we're all guilty of that. And, and you know, you worry about your problems, your financial problems, your family problems, your whatever, your life. And the big picture is it's like, it's not for me to worry about, but it actually needs to be, right? We need to take it on an individual level and start 
trying to affect some change from the bottom up. Yeah, nicely put, Bob. Sometimes I come up with pearls of wisdom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Rarely, but, you know, thank you. Uh, thank you for noticing. Well, listen, that's all the time we have today, unfortunately. But I really want you to come back in the not-too-distant future because I would love to continue this uh, conversation, Henry. It's just it's al hey. always great. Uh, I've been missing seeing you at uh, in-person conferences for the past almost two years now. Uh, I think the last time I saw you was two or three years ago. It was a while ago. Yeah. Maybe four years. Yeah, it was so. IQA in Atlanta. Yeah, so that was, yeah, so it's yeah. three years, uh, four yeah. years. Well, come uh, back to long Atlanta. Time, long time. So um, anyway, thanks so very much for joining us. We yeah. greatly appreciate what you're Thank doing. You so and, you know, you all, all your efforts, you know, from your career and what you continue to do, uh, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. It's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Bert Faisal. Thanks. So uh, we'll be back again uh, next week uh, for the Healthy Indoor Show. I want to do a quick quick plug reminder for our uh, online global community, because that's actually uh, something that some of you may not be watching us on right now, because while that's our primary streaming location uh, going forward now, um, we're also uh, streaming all of our shows to uh, Facebook and YouTube and all, all kinds of places, LinkedIn. So you might be watching us somewhere else, but uh, the Healthy Indoors online global community, you can learn more about that at global. Well, this is actually where the community is located, global.healthyindoors.com. If you're not a member, you can become a member for free. So that's kind of cool. Um, and you really should take advantage of that because what it is is more than just a repository of content. I mean, it's that, but it's it's a dedicated platform, online platform that's indoor environmental centric. Uh, it's a place where you can meet other people from around the world that are interested in indoor environmental issues and, and network and share information, learn. I mean, it's a, just a lot of great stuff going on there. I'll give you the quick video plug. This will be helpful. There it is. So for uh, our guest, Henry Slack, and myself, I'm Bob Krell. Um, thank you so very much for joining us this week. We'll You're be here. back again next Thursday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time for the Healthy Indoors live show. Take care.